and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak with Julia Ebner, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, specializing in extremism, radicalization, viral disinformation, and terrorism prevention. Julia advises parliamentary working groups, security agencies, and tech firms, and delivers lectures globally. She's the author of the books, The Rage, The Vicious Circle of Islamist and Far-Right Extremism, and Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists. Julia is currently completing her DPhil in anthropology at Oxford University. Julia Ebner, welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Hi, thank you for having me. In your book, The Rage, you look at extremist movements, both online and offline, and were one of the first people to show how neo-Nazi and jihadist extremists have succeeded in penetrating each other's echo chambers. What made you decide to go down this path of research? And what did you learn that perhaps you didn't anticipate before? It was interesting because um, back when I started with that research, it was mostly jihadist, ISIS-inspired attacks that we saw across Europe and, and across the world, really. But I was wondering what the impact would be on our societies, especially our liberal democracies in Europe, um, and what I saw was that there was a big backlash coming from the far right side of the spectrum where anti-Muslim uh, anti -Muslim resentment was growing and where it seemed like the jihadist attacks were directly feeding into the strength of far right extremist movements. So that made me interested in investigating a bit further what the interplay was between jihadists and, and far right extremists. And what was really surprising, or at least I didn't anticipate the, the extent to which uh, there are parallels in the narratives, in the strategies, and of course, also in the goals that both of these fringe groups that are on the opposite sides of the ideological spectrum um, have in common. And mainly, of course, the black and white narratives of pitting one part of the population against another, perceiving the world as very black and white and dividing into in-groups that are being victimized and an out-group that is being demonized and sometimes dehumanized. And that was really interesting. And then of course, also the goal of bringing about dramatic political and societal change and using terrorist attacks, for example, to further exacerbate these existing divisions and to further accelerate um, a potential political collapse. That's really the goal that a lot of these extremist fringe groups have in common because they are on the on the less powerful um, side of, of yeah. Uh, in, in the power game. That's very interesting. One aspect I was uh, found very revealing about what you were just saying is that, so is it fair to say that both neo-Nazis and, and jihadists, they need each other effectively to utilize their respective uh, recruitment streams? I would say so to some extent. Of course, we see that they have um, existed independently from each other, but there is a sense that they really help each other in amplifying 
their rhetoric and their propaganda and in really lending credibility to their narratives. Jihadist movements who recruit a lot of alienated Muslims on the basis of the statement as Muslims were being discriminated against, were targeted by hate crimes. They are really, um, I mean, their their claims are partly so credible because there have been attacks happening against Muslim communities. And a lot of these attacks have been carried out by far-right extremists and vice versa, far-right extremists who would then say, um, well, we've seen all these jihadist-inspired attacks. That's the danger of immigration or that's the danger of um, Muslim communities who are growing in uh, in, in European countries or in, in North America. They unfortunately have a bigger, they can make an argument based on the number of attacks we've seen. So there is a sense that they're feeding off one another. And they have also interestingly have been even instances of cooperation because of course they have shared traits as well. For example, anti-Semitic um, narratives and conspiracy myths were, for example, in the um in the the supermarket. Uh, hostage taking that appeared around the time when the Charlie Hebdo shootings happened in a suburb in Paris. Um, there we had uh, we had actually the weapons that were supplied to the jihadists who carried out that hostage taking were supplied by um, by a, a far right identitarian from the north of France. So there have also been very odd cases of of actual. Uh, collaboration between those two different sides of the ideological um, extremist spectrum. When you talk about this odd dynamic, there's another new emerging trend that has taken place, possibly due to the pandemic, or the pandemic may have proliferated. It is this dynamic of uh, alt-jihad subculture. Uh, Do you think that that uh, is is a growing concern? Do you see overlaps between that alter jihad subculture and and the far right neo Nazis uh, in in action, uh, and in terms of how they operate online and and what their eventual goals are? Absolutely, this has been really, I mean, fascinating from a research perspective, but of course also quite concerning to see the extent to which extremist groups um, are borrowing from each other and also learning from each other. There's almost a sense of cumulative learning across extremist groups. So what initially the alt-right did and the far-right extremist side um, was that they uh, borrowed a lot of the elements that seemed to work well in ISIS campaigns. They used a lot of the the tactics to appeal to young generations, which ISIS was, of course, pioneering and really managed to do, unfortunately, quite well to recruit people between the ages of of 18 and 25, especially. So the alt-right copied some of their tactics with national action using very similar slogans, even using a white jihad kind of um, rhetoric. Uh, So really applying the rhetoric of ISIS and jihadists. Uh, and now we are seeing, as you say, the the opposite trend, where is, Islamist extremists and jihadists are using some of the online tactics and social media campaign tactics that uh, that the alt right has has pioneered to some extent. The use of memes and satire and and humoristic uh, visual content that's something that was more um, an innovation by the alt-right. And they're using sometimes the exact same memes that uh, originated from alt-right channels. We actually released a report at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, um, where I'm a research uh, fellow, that's called Islamogram, that really shows how Islamist extremists have adopted some of that old uh, old lingo and old vocabulary and, and visual uh, strategy. 
So it seems to be a very vicious cycle where they're feeding off each other and it's growing and it's uh, metamorphosizing in various different ways, very disturbing ways. I want to also address the misogyny angle here because we know that in both neo-Nazi and jihadist movements, there's a strong prevalence to violently abuse and control women. Neo-Nazis and jihadists, they're different, but then we're also seeing similarities that you are are identifying. Uh, why does misogyny play such an important role for these respective uh, extremist entities? It's a really important common denominator. As you say, both have such a deeply ingrained or deeply um, inherent misogynistic element in their ideologies and in their narratives. And partly the reason partly um, that is the case is because they both want to return to a distant past where uh, women had no rights, where we didn't have modern uh, liberal societal structures, uh, where uh, yeah, women uh, fulfilled a very different role in, in society. And it's interesting because this is coupled, this kind of idealization or glorification of of the past where human rights were not respected to the same extent as today and women's rights especially is coupled with a, a desire to use the techniques of the future to be an early adopter of new innovative um yeah online online techniques and and use new ide- uh, new technologies but couple those with very old ideologies so it's an interesting dichotomy um of of old ideologies coupled with um with new technologies Another related aspect is that we've also seen women play a prominent role in terrorism as recruiters, groomers, and even engaging in violence itself. ISIS were very prominent in that uh, approach. Uh, There have been cases in both Germany and the United States recently where women who were part of ISIS have been prosecuted for enslaving other women uh, during the height of ISIS's a so-called caliphate, and literally handing these women over to ISIS male fighters as female slaves. Can you explain why women would want to play such a prominent role in terrorist groups and engage in some very disturbing uh, behavior? Are their motivations similar to men? It's a very good question that I've asked myself multiple times, especially when speaking to female members of both Islamist extremist and far-right extremist groups. But what seemed to be interesting and, and such a paradox, because of course they would be part of a deeply misogynist group, but they would often say that they feel they they felt empowered by it. And but they could they had a completely new way also of looking at what it means to be a woman. Um, some of them had femininity crisis. Uh, so we often talk about masculinity crisis as being a major driver of extremism. And interestingly, I could see a similar identity crisis among some of the women who couldn't really cope with, for example, double burdens with the fast-paced dating life and who were just frustrated by by some aspects of being a woman in today's world. So that was an interesting also commonality and the parallel to to what drives um, uh, male extremists. But of course, there were other factors too, and they were actually very similar to what what is driving men. So there is something where 
it's not it's not true to look at um women as as completely unique and and very different having a very different radicalization pathway um from my research and also from from what other researchers wrote even in terms of female suicide bombers there are very uh there are many parallels and many commonalities in the radicalization pathways you've mentioned several times some of the research that you've done you're a primary source researcher you don't just talk about issues uh, from afar, you go very deep. Uh, and that leads me to what I wanted to talk to you about next is that you'd written another book, uh, Going Dark, where you literally go undercover, adopting five different identities uh, and joining about a dozen or so extremist groups from across the ideological spectrum. What was that like? And did it take a toll on your mental health? Yes, that was definitely an interesting um, research project and an investigation that really my goal was to understand better what drives people on a very human level to join extremist groups and also to stay within extremist groups and to understand the tactics better. And I thought the best way to do that is to really be on the inside of, of an extremist group. So I adopted lots of um, different identities to join different groups across the ideological spectrum. I built up five different avatar accounts over time to be recruited by extremist groups like Generation Identity, the white national uh, nationalist movement, but also went to a neo-Nazi festival in Germany. Um, so I also did offline investigations. I also spent uh, time with the uh, with white nationalists, actually meeting them in a pub in London and going to an event at an Airbnb in Brixton. And that was um, definitely something where I was increasingly concerned about my own safety. And it's also the reason why I didn't continue it um, because it is, it it definitely took a toll um, on me on a, I think on on a psychological level as well. Because of course, many researchers working in in that field of radicalization prevention are exposed to a lot of contents that can be deeply traumatizing, especially over time, um, can turn into chronic trauma. And but but being so close, also in the offline world, really meeting up with people had a different dimension to it as well because of course there were campaigns against me after that there were hate campaigns and and including death threats and sexual threats when they found out who i really was which was inevitable because of the the books that i published and the articles that i wrote i can imagine that must have been extremely challenging to to deal with and related to this um did you notice people becoming disenchanted wanting to leave these groups that you were embedding yourself in? And if so, what led to uh, their choice of, of leaving? Did this experience provide any insights on what more can be done to stop individuals from succumbing to uh, violent ideological doctrines? Definitely. There were a few cases, and it seemed to follow a wider pattern that I could observe from up close, which was people leaving after some kind of event or incident that really um, brought their own, that, that really questioned their own worldview and their perception of the in-group versus the out-group. So for example, Charlottesville, I was on the inside of, of the organization teams and, and looked at what was happening in the run-up to the Charlottesville rally. And when the, the events then turned violent and actually led to one uh, counter-protester uh, dying, being murdered in, in the car terrorist attack there, that really alienated some of the people within the movement and led them to leave 
the movement because they were so surprised that this could happen. The same was true when when the Christchurch shooting happened, where you saw that a few people could just not really combine the, being part of a community and uh, that they felt was was very much reflecting their own um, their own state of mind, their own ideologies. But then seeing that community turn towards violence, that was definitely something that led to some people leaving. But equally, when all of a sudden the enemy or the perceived enemy was no longer perceived as as so evil or as so um, as as yeah as because so some of the the individuals would then have positive experiences with the so-called enemy and would start to question these black and white narratives. So usually some kind of surprising moment that would lead them to break up their narratives about the us and the them was a good starting point for people to leave. So to connect the thread further, you've been researching uh, the language um, and narratives that have been produced in written communications by terrorists, including manifestos that are associated with uh, violent attacks. You co-authored a very important peer-reviewed journal article in relation to this. Can this be used to help security agencies, defense ministries improve their detection and prevention practices when it comes to counterterrorism? That would be the hope. It it can, of course, it can add one additional layer to early uh, early warning systems, for example, to really see when someone is radicalizing towards violence, because it's it's getting increasingly hard these days to distinguish between what's a what's an empty threat online because of the sheer amount of threats that we have in the online spaces, and what's actually something that should be further investigated and should be taken seriously. And the idea of the, the the systematic terrorist manifesto analysis was to statistically, um, both yeah, both quantitatively, statistically, but also qualitatively examine what, in terms of the language and the social psychological drivers revealed through language, what distinguishes the communications of terrorists from um, from the communications or texts written by people who would never resort to violence, and. What came out of this was that there is a, that there is almost a formula of different factors that seem to be statistically significant among uh, future terrorist perpetrators who uploaded the terrorist manifestos. And that was identity fusion, which has already been found in previous research to be linked to, to extreme forms of, of violence. And it means basically when your personal identity merges with your group identity, and that can be tracked in language as well. And it's revealed subconsciously. So even if you con- if you strategically escalate or de-escalate in your language, it goes beyond that. Or even the use of satire wouldn't really distort um, this phenomenon of identity fusion. And that's often then combined with violence condoning group norms, such as the justification of violence, the glorification of previous attackers, or the glorification of martyrdom, and with dehumanizing and demonizing language towards a perceived enemy group. So those are the different factors that seem to be um, uniquely or exclusively uh, a pattern in terrorist manifestos as opposed to non-terrorist manifestos. And I would hope that this can can help at least maybe allocate the resources to the right um, to the to the right groups or to to individuals online who are really posing a credible threat um, to violence and who might actually resort to terror uh, tactics. I'd like to pivot to another dynamic. Uh, you, 
you've done so much primary source uh, research. Uh, I'm curious, do you ever come across the role of hostile state actors such as Russia uh, who may engage with prescribed entities to cause social tensions uh, with other countries? Because we know that Russia engages in a lot of uh, actions uh, that are designed to cause problems in many countries. And we're seeing a lot of psychological operations coming out of the Kremlin during the whole conflict in Ukraine. Has that ever come across your path? It definitely has. Um, and there have been many touch points uh, for my research. And at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we've done a lot of research into disinformation campaigns and how they interact with, with radicalization um, and, and amplification of what fringe and extremist uh, groups do. So it's interesting to see a parallel in, of course, in the goals uh, of fringe actors, extremist actors in, say, our liberal democracies and foreign state actors who are hostile to our democracies, like Russia. Russia is, is definitely a, an important one among them because it has been the Kremlin's goal to destabilize the European Union, to destabilize um, well, the UK and North America. Uh, and so there is a common sense that they're, they're trying to reach the same goal. Uh, and Russia has definitely it's been really it's been really difficult to to prove the exact links, but there have been amplification mechanisms which we could pinpoint in our research. For example, Russian sponsored media outlets really giving giving airtime and repeating the hashtags or the campaigns uh, that were driven by far right extremists and also by other fringe communities. It doesn't really matter to them which ideology it is as long as it. Uh, creates chaos within within Europe or within North America. So that's been uh, that's an ongoing, I guess, question: how to what extent can we prove that there are actual Russian officials who are behind this or who are funding this? And um, I believe lots of journalists, but also researchers, are really on this. But it's it's still a tricky topic to approach. Yes, I can imagine. You spoke about fringe narratives and how Russia may wish to exploit that for their own uh, agenda. It sort of makes me want to track back to some of the things that we were discussing earlier in the sense that have you noticed what the main uh, gateways into online extremist communities are for both Islamist and uh, and, and far-right? Uh, are there commonalities, things that are identified as acceptable, quote-unquote, ways of getting lured into uh, these dangerous pathways? Yeah, there are definitely there's the exploitation of of similar grievances, and they often have something to do with personal experiences, personal um, feelings of loss of status or socioeconomic issues, or um, even a feeling to be to be an outsider, to to not be heard by politicians. All of these grievances are then projected or turned into a bigger narrative that fits the group or the movement movement's ideology, and that's the interesting parallel between all types of extremist movements that they're very good at at turning personal grievances into something bigger that would reflect the the group's ideology and of course conspiracy myths are kind of an intermediary here they are used to to make that connection to make that bridge and very often that's that's quite handy especially in times of crisis we saw that with covid and also um the russian war in ukraine that uh some of the the, the the information vacuum and the uncertainty uh, in in those crises was was exploited and misused by extremists, and they could really um, tap into 
into entire population segments that seem to be more vulnerable and, and seem to look for some kind of overarching explanation for their own uh, personal losses or fears or their own lack of perspective. And so I think it's really important also on a political level um, to really spot what are the population segments in a crisis, and that can be the health crisis, that can be even the, to do with the with COVID, the COVID um, impact on mental health and on socioeconomic situations. What are the population segments that might be most likely to develop a sense of anti-establishment or uh, grievance or feeling of of deep discontent with the status quo, who can then easily be brought to the side of extremists, extremist narratives. Um, and the same is true now with the economic and energy crisis. This is a major opportunity, unfortunately, for extremist movements to recruit more people into their arms. You've demonstrated throughout our conversation just the, the breadth of research that you've undertaken, and it's uh, very uh, important uh, in terms of helping us understand and demystify a lot of the different narratives that feed into extremism and how uh, they operate. So a final question. Um, it's a preconceived leading question, I guess. Um, you studied at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, you took the, the master's course, Political Islam, that I happen to teach along with uh, Dr. Kirsten Schultz. How much did the course help you? in your career path i would say it was i would say it was even the kickstarter of what got me interested in the topic and it was it helped me really helped me really to understand the underlying patterns of forms different forms of extremism so i still benefit from the course today and i'm not just saying that because you're hosting this podcast but it's been really very um yeah, it's, it's been really very fundamental in my thinking about extremism, about radicalization. And it was what initially got me interested in the topic because it was a really fascinating course. And uh, so I can definitely recommend to anyone who's studying at the LSE. But um, yeah, I'm very grateful for what, for what I learned in the course and also for all the questions that it prompted. Well, you uh, remain one of the all-stars of uh, the course and... Uh... Everyone's very proud of uh, what you've done and, and what you're continuing to achieve. So thank you for the plug for HY435 <laughs> at LSC. Um, let me also just thank you again, Julia, for spending the time talking to us about all these very uh, important issues. And we look forward to your ongoing uh, research. And let me just say thanks again for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or Deep.